What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. Today on the show, we have one of my absolute favorite musicians of all time, Bruce Hornsby. I've been a huge fan of Hornsby since I was a little kid. I remember hearing on the radio, The Way It Is. Just like a lot of people, that song was a total hit. But the one thing in particular that I really liked about that song, I remember thinking, the piano sounds so cool. What is it about the piano that sounds so cool? The thing that I always liked about the piano was the voicings. Hornsby's got a unique style in his cluster voicings. He kind of has this like Debussy cluster voicing thing that he does, but in a pop context and with pop voicings that sound really cool. Like a lot of add nines, he adds a lot of major sevens, but they don't sound like jazzy major sevens. They just sound, yeah, it doesn't sound like you're trying to, it doesn't sound like you're cheesing something up by trying to make it jazzy. Like it actually sounds really cool. Uh, I don't know. You know, sometimes like you listen to something, it's like, oh, let's make it jazz. And they just make all the major chords, major seven. They make all the dominance, like a dominant nine or add a 13 or something. It's like, ah, that's not really jazz. You're like playing a jazz voice. Anyways, whatever. I digress. Hornsby is incredible. An insane musician. A musician's musician. The last three records that he did, he did with Bon Iver, Justin Vernon. They're insane. They are incredibly modern and incredibly musical and like modern in the way that they should be. And it's also like completely true to Hornsby as an artist. That actually is the thing that is maybe the most inspiring to me with Hornsby is that through all of the all of these different eras, he's been able to reinvent himself as a musician and as an artist and explore all this different territory with a bluegrass record with Ricky Skaggs doing a jazz record. You know, he's out there with Dijonette, you know, and he's doing pop records. He's producing pop records. And, you know, he's, he's trying a bunch of different things and doing them really well. Solo piano albums, singer-songwriter things. I saw a concert of him where it was just piano and voice, and I've seen him with his full band. It's absolutely incredible and super inspiring for any artist. So I hope you dig this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Hey, also, I was in a rut yesterday. I was trying to practice guitar. I was thinking, this sucks. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. And I I felt like I'd lost my compass. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know where North was. And if you ever feel like you get into this, check out my guitar course. I have a guitar course. You just search Corey Wong Guitar Course wherever online. And in there, I have built several one-hour workshops where it's structured practice routines. And I literally opened up my own video yesterday when I thought I was lost and needed to practice and needed focus on my practice. And it really helped. These are practice routines that I developed over years of college, years of being around incredible musicians, interviewing incredible musicians on how and what to practice and how to get the most efficient use of your time. So if you're like me and every once in a while just need help finding focus in your practice and finding a routine, check out Corey Wong Guitar Course because I've made some really great practice routines. I'm not gonna lie, it's not gloating, I just know they're great routines because they get results. Results that I would guarantee. I said it, I said it, guarantee, men's warehouse style. You're gonna like the way you sound, I guarantee it. If you follow every single, if you you go through every one of my videos on the Corey Wong Guitar Course, I guarantee you will be a better guitar player. No matter if you're beginner, intermediate, 
advanced, master, whatever. I guarantee it right now. Calling it. Okay? Hey, let's not waste any more time. Here we go. Bruce Hornsby. Hey, you guys know about DistroKid yet? If you are an artist, musician, somebody who's trying to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, all of those things, DistroKid is a digital distributor that can get your music on all of those platforms. It's the easiest, fastest way to do so, with accounts even just starting at $19.99 a year per artist. So for me, I have several albums out. I just pay one amount for the year. For all the Corey Wong albums, I just pay one amount, and DistroKid takes 0% royalty. 100% of the royalties come straight to me. Or you use their Teams feature where you can dedicate a certain percentage to one member of your band, a certain percentage to the other, or one of your collaborators. I do this sort of thing. It works amazing. DistroKid is who I use for my albums and it has worked great for me. The stuff gets up there fast. They have a smart ISRC thing. I don't have to worry about coming up with my own codes, registering a lot of the stuff. They just have that. And they also have these really cool design tools. If you are not very design savvy, they'll help you come up with assets for social media and other things to help promote your album. And if you want to use them, you can use my VIP code. Just go distrokid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong and you get 30% off. How about that? Check them out. Distrokid. All right, let's hit this episode. Uh, this is really an honor for me just to give you a little background on myself. I am a guitar player. I oh, play no, in the band no, Wolfpack. He, and I, I know, I know who you are. I know uh, your music, uh, the video with you uh, talking about having a real job. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you. You're quite the showbiz personality. I mean, uh, it's not just are you the the baddest rhythm player going that, but you're uh, you're also sort of a thespian. So way to go. Oh, thank you. I cannot tell you how much that means coming from you. Man of many hats and wearing them well, so way to go. Thank you. Thank you. That's actually where I wanted to start with this interview with you, is that you are somebody who, I my favorite part about your, I mean, everybody has their favorite Bruce Hornsby, because there's like many facets to what you do. My favorite Bruce Hornsby is the piano player getting into the deep, just like channeling something so deep and of the earth, that Bruce Hornsby. And then there's the singer, there's the songwriter, there's the producer. How have you <laughs> managed to, and 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 I, I ask this in the sense that you've had pop singles, you've done scores, you've worked with uh, Spike Lee on so many things. And this current stuff that you're doing sounds so interesting. How do you balance all of that as an artist for yourself. Well, it's all it's all about uh, evolution and being intellectually curious on a musical level, and being a little, frankly, creatively restless. Uh, and but also, it's mostly about I, I think going where the inspiration leads you. Uh, mm. People have always asked me to describe my piano style. They would say, "Well, we always know it's you when you're playing, and why is it that we know?" You and I, so I finally had to come up with a, a succinct, facile description, which is Bill Evans meets the hymn book. Okay, mm. and so, so I always loved the Bill Evans. Look, I'm a music school geek, and yeah. uh, came up through all that. I think you did a little bit of the same. Yeah, seems like your band guys. I mean, the 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 ability, the 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 
the abilities, musical abilities in, in your crowd is just off the charts. I mean, it's off the, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. It, everyone just nails everything on a groove, time, rhythmic level. And so I, I come from that background as well. Uh, I, I imagine a lot of, for instance, your horn guys might have gone to music school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I get it. I, I've, I've walked the walk a long time ago, but uh, I, would, I was always interested in lots of music when I went to Berkeley College of Music. The Boston, I went there for two semesters in 74, 75. Uh, the the uh, Boston Public Library allowed you, had a, an amazing record collection, and you could check out records like you checked out books. So I would just oh, wow. run roughshod through the ranks of modern classical music, Charles Ives and Olivier Messiaen, Eric Satie, and and then later years got much more deeply involved in the modern classical area, much to the chagrin of a lot of my longtime fans who want to lead a white note life, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but, that, so that, but that's a different aspect of this. Uh, so I loved Bill Evans. I loved his harmonic concept, which, of course, was, was really inspired and taken from uh, the French Impressionists, uh, Ravel, uh, most importantly, Ravel, but also Debussy. So I kind of grokked that. There were lots of great Bill Evans transcription books, so I bought them and would learn the music that way. But I always loved the uh, the more simple, more triadic, but also, but in, in its own way, rather complex area of the modern uh, American hymn book, the church music. Uh, and so I always loved the the figured bass, the thirds in the bass moving on up and so that was that was also an influence. So those two together made up my style because those are the two areas or two areas that gave me chills. And so I wanted to try to give myself chills. And so then again the creative restlessness comes into play. I made my first three records. They were sort of stylistically of a piece and I thought, "Okay, I've done that. I'm moving on." Again, much to the chagrin of my sort of more softcore fans who wanted me to sound the same, the way they like me all for, for, for yeah. the rest of my life, which is an incredible creative prison. So I moved, I started moving into using more of the jazz language in my music, and that was the next two records, Harbor Lights, Hot House, using my newfound friends, Pat Metheny, Brantford Marsalis, Bela Fleck, Wayne Shorter, you know, blah, blah, on and on. Then I went more into, oh, look, I could keep going, but then, so then I've made my forays into bluegrass music with Ricky Skaggs and jazz music with Jack DeJanette, Christian McBride. These were all projects that emanated from their interest in doing something with me. Ricky said, we should make a record together. Uh, Jack, Jack and Christian kept sort of <laughs> quietly badgering me saying, Come on, when are we going to do this? When are we going to have have our, our moment together? So, and then it's continued lately uh, with two situations that occurred. Spike Lee started, I'd worked with Spike for years, but it ramped up into a more, into a deeper level uh, in the late, you know, about 2008, he asked me to start scoring some films for him. So I did that and amassed all this, this music I'd written for him over the next 12 years. And so, and in the middle of that time period, which was 2008 to 2000, say 20, 19, 20, I started getting shouted out by the, uh, the great Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. As, yeah. And he started shouting me out in the press as being someone who had been an inspiration to him when, when he was coming up. And so then I started working with him. And that opened up a completely new door. Justin 
opened this door for me, and I went in through the door, only to find that there were a whole lot more people in this world who felt the, about me the way he did. And so that's, mm. that's a, so Spike Lee, plus the indie world, musically, musician-wise, that sort of is a, 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 a quick synopsis of all my years and, and a quick synopsis describing the new music. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, these generations or like iterations of your music are some of the things that I want to dive into. And yeah, as right. you're saying it, I'm realizing the same. I mean, I've had this since I was a little kid. There's a certain magnetism to you and your artistry. You as a person, the way that you express yourself through your artistry, you seem to be fairly self-aware, obviously, with the way that you write and the way that you describe your own playing what do you think it is about all these different genres? Now, it's one thing to be magnetic in one thing, but for somebody like yourself, how do you think that you've got such a strong magnetism towards yourself with all these musicians from different genres? Magnetism in the sense that you feel that um, these musicians are drawn to me? Is that what you mean by magnetism? I think so, yeah. I mean, I I was drawn to your your pop music, just as a kid, hearing it on the radio. Yeah. And then right. as I grew older, I started to listen to a lot more of your piano music. I went to a, a concert of yours that was solo piano. Oh, and, where, was, where was this? Where and when? This was in Minneapolis, probably oh, maybe eight years ago, five years. Time is warped for me right but it, now. It but it was just me and a piano? Yes. Might've been the Guthrie Theater, possibly? Either the was Guthrie it? or the Roy Wilkins Auditorium. Okay, uh-huh, yeah. Um, well, then then you really heard what I do then. You heard with all the uh, the two-handed independence thing that I've been developing through the years. Uh, so that's a different side of it. Okay, so, but but that's, uh, we're getting off the subject. Uh, I can't really answer the question of why someone's interested in me and working with me. I just fig I've just always figured, simply put, that they just like what I do. They moved, they're moved by what I do and they want to have a little bit of that influence in their music. Just like when I ask people to play on their uh, on my records, I, sure. I'm interested in sort of casting my records like a film director would. Okay, who do I think would sound amazing and enhance this song I've written, for instance? And so I'm just figuring that that's that's their their aim as well. When they call me, they want some of my yeah idiosyncratic whatever stylistically on on their music whether it was Don Henley early on or Justin more recently yeah these these last few records have a very specific sound to them flicked the new one non secure connection absolute zero these three records i can hear that Justin Vernon influence, I can hear the way that he drew certain things out of you that probably seemingly to him were just right there. And that it was probably to me, like you're saying, like this creative, just like an intellectual creative wanting to just constantly search for something. I hear that in those last three, in these last yeah. three albums, which is so cool. How did he draw that out of you? Well, it's interesting because, okay, he, on his second record, I believe it's Bon Iver, Bon Iver is the name of the record. Yeah. Uh, he wrote and recorded a song on that called Beth Rest, and he's called it his Bruce Hornsby song. And <laughs> uh, Okay, I guess, it's, again, simply put, just, so Justin has been channeling me a little bit here and there, as he says, 
maybe since then, uh, the, yeah. the, uh, since then. And uh, when I heard this stuff, and there's a song on, uh, on 22 A Million called Eight Circle. It's mm-hmm. just gorgeous. It's just beautiful. And he's using the pads, and it sounds, it could be said, and it sounds, and, and I've read it in uh, writers writing about the, the music will say, oh, Eight Circle, that sounds like his, his Bruce Hornsby moment of this record. And so what my reply to that is, well, if he's doing me, he's doing me a whole lot better than I do me because I just <laughs> I'm so moved by those records that he's done. And of course, he's one of the great singers. Yeah, I've been in the studio when he, with him when he's singing, and the air just moves when he opens his mm-hmm. mouth. You, everyone looks around and just goes, you know, just wow. It's just it can be so transcendent with him. He's just got one of the great voices, and he's he's grokked all of the traditional old American music. He's such a, a devotee of old-time folk music, country, blues. He's just really uh, internalized all that. And so he's just a soul man, nonpareil. And so, uh, so uh, right, so then he's doing me, supposedly, but he's doing me a lot better than I do it. <laughs> so, but, so I guess when I've worked with him, a perfect example uh, is the song Cast Off from Absolute Zero, which is a song we wrote together. I'll be, I'll be your cast off, be your discarded boy, discarded toy. And there's the sense, the, the pads in there, sort of the, the if you go to Eau Claire's, uh, his old studio, I'm not sure he even uses this place anymore, but in 2018, he was still using it. It was called April Bass. And they had this banks of synths, old Prophet Fives, you know, old, I don't know, even even a DX7, old, old OBXs. That was yeah. my, it was Junos, like I used on my early records, Junos and OBXs, playing synth bass on the OBX, for instance, on Way It Is, et cetera. And so they're recording this stuff on my music, which is sort of reminiscent of some of my earlier things. To yeah. me, way, way more... I don't know, way more florid and, and beautiful and, and textural than my early records are just me playing along with a drum machine and, and an mm. OBX, little, the, the most basic pad I could find. It's you know just very bare bones in that way. So you go out and work in Eau Claire with the Bon Iver crowd, and it's that sort of developed to the max. And so uh, there was that symbiotic relationship that we had where, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah, it was so cool to hear that side of you and that side of him. It it really felt like a collaborative piece of art that that I'm happy to have, have to listen to because it's such a fun, it's a fun, interesting way to present you as an artist. And it's such a cool way to show, like you're saying, the evolution yeah. of somebody and it it really shows like Bruce is not phoning it in. You're like, no, not really, at all. Really really doing the thing and constantly striving for it. No, I fucking mean it every day. I mean, I it's it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to to do what you love to do most in the world for a living as you yeah. know, as we as we know, so we're fortunate in that way. But I've never taken it for granted. I want to keep doing it. And so I'm always looking for the inspiration. But oh, through the last many years, say, I've 
been doing it maybe a little quietly, not with the attention, but all of a sudden, not with this affirmation, this massive amount of affirmation that happened on the Absolute Zero record and the, and, and the yeah. last record, Non-Secure, after that, where I just got, I got all this, this uh, sort of very kind, very nice, uh, affirmative uh, uh, feedback. And so that's inspiring also. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, if, I, I liken it to, okay, my first record. I'm not that fond of my first record. I think it's not very good. I, I'm really not a fa- fan of the singer on that record, on those records. It's a little <laughs> little wooden, a little straight. I mean, I feel like what I do now is just in another galaxy from that, mm-hmm. uh, just on an expressive level and, and uh, mm. you know, slow learner. That's what you'd, That's what I would call myself. But but the first record went so far so quickly, and that was inspiring to me. And so I ended up writing my second record, and I'm so proud of so many of the songs on that second record. It's called Scenes from the South Side. Again, I don't lo- I lo- love the records that we made, but the songs hold up to this day, yeah. and m- most of them, and still love to play them. And so I think I wrote, they always say, it's always a common maxim that you have your whole life to write your first record and you have six months to write your second or whatever, a smaller, yeah. obviously way smaller uh, time period. But I wrote it all because I was so inspired by this, this positive attention. Now, mind mm. you, I say positive. We were in England. We broke in England in 86. Yeah. BBC Radio 1 of just jockey named Mick Vilkoich heard this song and just start put it on the air and boom, there it went. Yeah. Who knew? A, a song. You must have gotten a kick being a music school nerd or just a musician guy to hear somebody getting away with, getting away with all that blowing on a top 40 song. You know, a oh, song, yeah. You know, Valley Road. You know, I'm playing like McCoy Tyner over three-chord rock on the radio, you know, so I, I couldn't believe, and my music school friends, my musician friends couldn't believe what I was getting away with on these records. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, we broke the, there, and we're over there making videos and being on these local, they call them chat shows in England, and the BMG publicist, Dave so-and-so, comes over to me and says, hey, Bruce, here's, here's some press for you. He gives me this this folder probably about 100 pages of, uh, and it's basically 100 pages of British uh, critics just ripping me, my, ripping my ass. <laughs> I seriously got uh, a queasy stomach reading this. Oh, it was, man. It was so, so negative. Yeah. So there was that. But but I, there was <laughs> both sides. Uh, those people came around later. That crowd. <laughs> they came around to me later when I when my music, frankly, was more adventurous and more interesting to me. They, mm. they felt that as well. Uh, so, all this people wonder, well, why why three records in four years? Which is what Flicked is the third record yeah. in four years. And it's I have to say it's purely because of the reaction that I got to. The first one, Absolute Zero, yeah. in 2019. For instance, I hadn't toured in Europe since 2004. I'd done a couple of gigs in, in in the UK since, but but not since then. But all of a sudden, with all this attention, here came the European promoters. Yeah. Well, okay, the, this guy, he's he's back or something, and and so I've I'll, then I I did a European tour. So I think I I I, mean, I know it sounds. A little sort of brainless to say, but I think uh, positive reinforcement 
can be an inspiration. Absolutely. You know, I think that's that's really great. And I don't think there's any shame in saying that. Like when people are into what you're doing, it also gives you a certain confidence to be okay with like people are into this. Oh, cool. Like this is good. Sometimes we just need somebody to remind us, like, oh yeah, this is good. This is cool. This is it's funny so funny. What you said just reminds me of a fun story. I was discovered by Michael McDonald. We were playing in a bar and we found him in his hotel and in the lobby and said, we came up to him in the lobby and said, my, my old drummer, John Molo, now plays with Phil Lesh and so many people in the jam world. We walk up to him, we're a little bigger than Mike. We go up to him and say, hey, Mike, we're the baddest motherfuckers in this town and we're playing right over here at the Steak and Ale. You should come and hear us. And so, <laughs> so he looks up at us and says, well, 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 I'm going to the movies now, but I will if I can. Uh, if I can. If, and so he did, he came over, on, there was on their night off and Long story short, he what we did kind of floored him. He was just kind of blown by what we were doing. Mm. And so he tried to help us. And then six years later, I got signed. So Wow. He, that oh, yeah. long. Yes. This was this was December one or so of 1978. And I got signed in March, April of 85. And but but that's another story. It's kind of long, but it's it's it for the right reasons. I really wasn't quite ready when mm. he when he discovered sure. me. But anyway, this so now I'm still living in the valley and our first record had done what it did. And I'm I'm making writing the songs and making demos for number two. And somehow Mike and I reconnected and he came over to my house. And I'm playing this stuff because I'm real proud of it. You know, show uh, show goes on, road not taken, valley road, look out any window, uh Jacob's ladder, uh, defenders of the flag, on and on. And so he's listening to this stuff and he's going, He's 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 really he really likes it, and he goes, God, I you just I just he said I just something to the effect of because it's a long time ago, but he said something to the effect of I just feel the confidence come out of the, coming out of the speakers, mm. uh, it, and, and he says I remember when when that, that I remember this time in my career, which was probably say after minute by minute, sure, or, or his first couple of solo records, uh, I keep forgetting. It's an amazing yeah. ballad on Mike's first record. Was so wrong, was so right, almost at the same time. It's so great. I can let go now. That's the song. I can let go now. Yeah. Go listen to it. It's just gorgeous. So hats off to you, Mike McDonald, <laughs> a badass cat. Uh, so anyway, he says this to me. I, I can hear the, the confidence coming out of the speakers. This is so good. Yeah. And so you and, and I and so it brings brings us back to what you were just saying, responding to my story about being inspired by the confidence that uh positive affirmation gives you. From, got positive affirmation from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. In the you brought up some of your songs and I'm thinking through a lot of them now. And I'm thinking through different eras of society and the way that music speaks in society, the way that music can help the, the conversation of social commentary. And you have been a part of that with The Way It Is, obviously, yeah, and with, right. with other songs that you've written. And there's a lot of music right now being written, you know, in, in response to and in not just response, but also in um, in a looking forward to to things as far as the social commentary realm is. 
What role do you think musicians play in guiding and helping express the opinions of the public? And how can musicians best do that in a way that's that's true to themselves? Well, I've become a little jaded and cynical about all that in my in my dotage, in my senescence here at age 67. I, I, I feel like at, at the standard line is phrase is raising awareness, spreading awareness of an issue, mm-hmm. whether it's climate change, racism, uh, et cetera. And so, but that's 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 not that, that's not having much of an effect if you're raising awareness. I guess it has a little bit of effect, but uh, so if you inspire someone to take more action, then then you've you've done something well. I have a song on this new record. It's called "Had Enough," and it's a I guess you could call it a protest song, but what it's really protesting is the general public's inaction in the uh, and indifference mm. in the face of so much in the world that's horrifying or destructive in the case of of course climate change or racism at the, for that matter and so basically i'm putting it on myself have you had enough are you finally pissed off finally sick and tired is it finally too much are you sick and tired? Sick and tired? Maybe not. Reminds me of me a lot. You know, mm. I'm basically saying, you know what? I'm a sorry ass pitiful who who I can spout off my dissatisfaction about something, but am I really out on the hustings, on the barricades, mm. protesting or doing whatever I can? Not enough. So, sure. so that's sort of a, a self-critique. And so it's, it's a protest song about the lack of protests. Sure. True true protests in these these very fractured times. Yeah. Wow. So that's sort of an answer to your question, but it, it just yeah. it just it just again, cynical and, and and jaded that idea made me uh maybe write that song had enough and yeah. uh, I just thought, yeah, okay. What's the problem? I'm the problem. So it's easy for me to spout off about it. Do you feel like that would have been written by you 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago? How has that changed and what is it that changed for you as far as your outlook on that? Well, just uh, self-analysis, being self-aware and and going, okay, okay. Again, just what I just said, just... What, what the problem? What's what's the problem here? I'm part of the problem. Mm. You know, I, I can I can sing a nice song about it, and that may have some impact again on a, on a raising awareness uh, level. Yeah. But uh, it's not enough. I love though. There's a, a moment that happened after the George Floyd, George Floyd murder. Amazingly enough, it was it was a, 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 some film of a a protest rally in New Zealand, but. Uh, very black crowd in, in this in, in this at this rally, and and they started playing Tupac's Changes, and the entire crowd sang along with every freaking word. And that mm. I get chills thinking about that because of course Changes is, it's, yeah. it's 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 its origin story is my song. Yeah, so that's that's amazing. Uh, so but but uh, uh, but what what else what has changed? Maybe. Not being afraid of looking of being <laughs> of looking at yourself in the mirror and going, you know what, man, <laughs> you're not that great. <laughs> you you could mm. do a lot better. You could do a lot better. So. Sure. 
But that's but but I'm I'm always uh, people people say, well, what are you up to? Well, I'm just trying to keep self the self loathing at bay. Yeah, because you know I I'm pretty good at being kind of bad, kind of lame, and and uh, so I'm always just trying to to not suck. That's kind of I guess my sure my standard goal in life. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's switch gears because we're a yeah. guitar podcast here, and oh, you have boy. played. With- so, uh, we've lost everybody now. Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, this is yeah, good. Yeah. This is what people like hearing about. This, this, they, you're getting into it. But you've played with some insane guitar players. Everybody from Jerry Garcia, Pat Metheny, Blake Mills, Bonnie Raitt, Trey Anastasio. All these people that are like just like top, top, top guitar players. And there's one more guy I'd like to include in this pantheon that you're, uh, uh, that you're naming, and that's John Leventhal. Do you know who John mm, Leventhal yes, is? Yes, I do, yeah. He, he's most known to, to, to me as the producer and guitarist on uh, the, the, the early great Sean Colvin records, most yeah. notably A Few Small Repairs with Sonny Came Home. It was a big hit. Uh, but he played on my Spirit Trail record mm. and my sixth record, which is uh, for a lot of my true fans, they feel it's my best record until maybe these these last few. But uh, he played all over that, and his he's basically a guitar orchestra orchestrator. Yeah, he's he's great not a, producer. He really is, and he's just a great orchestral guitar player. Mm. He, he's yeah, he's he's all about the song. He doesn't care if he he's not about the solo. He doesn't care a bit about that. You know, he's not. He's not doesn't have his Jamie Abersole tapes out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four. Yeah. So you know, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I figured you'd get the reference. Uh, so, okay. So, but right, all these other guys you named, right? It's it's. I love guitar, and I these everybody you named. There are people whose guitar playing has moved me so deeply. You talked about Jerry and Pat Garcia and Matheny. I love their playing so much for so long, and so look, I I wanted to again in casting my records like a film director would. I heard those guys right away, and so Garcia yeah. was on the last, the third and last Range record, and then Harbor Lights and Hot House, and then after he died, I sampled him for the next record, which was Spirit Trail. So mm-hmm. he was on four records in a row. And yeah. Pat played on two records in, in a row at that same time, Harbor Lights and Hot House. So, uh, yeah, I've just been fortunate to be able to uh, be the coach and put these guys in the game and, and that that just turn out the music. I mean, Justin Vernon told me that when he was probably 13 years old, he transcribed Pat's solo on Harbor Lights, the song, because that, oh, wow. that solo is sick. Because yeah. the chords are the chords are, are kind of semi-standard diatonic, but then it goes way chromatic, and it took him a while. But man, what he came, what he played was just transcendent. And so, so for guitar geeks, there are a few of my records that have uh, some serious guitaristic meat on the bone. Yeah, what is it that you look for in guitar players? When you are, you're talking about being a casting director yeah. on a specific project. How do you choose the player? And then how do you kind of coach them along to say, here's what I'm looking for and let them explore? Well, here's a perfect example. Uh, uh, the aforementioned Pat Matheny on Harbor Lights. So he comes in here, he's in my studio. 
He's sitting right in this chair right next to me. I'm sitting in the same chair right now that I was sitting in in 1992 (laughs) as Pat's playing. So he's playing over the solo of of Harbor Lights. I wish I had a keyboard I could play it and give you a sort of uh, illustrate it. But he's he's kind of playing sort of blues stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. That sort of maybe a little that that kind of thing. And I'm thinking to myself, well, okay, this. And I so I just I spoke. I, I said to him what I was thinking, which is. Okay, look, you're playing. What you're playing is great, but you know, I got I, I could get. I could get a thousand and one guys to come in here and do that. I got you in here because I love angularity, melodic mm. game. You know, I love. I want to hear that kind of that kind of melodicism, angular melodicism. It's that's really come to the forefront in this new records. Yeah, my the, the melodies. I'm standing down to Salem. I'm a judge in a jury trial. Gotta yeah. get there by morning sunrise. Yeah, that, so that's dotted throughout this these last three records. And so then, so I said, oh, so that's what I would like. So he said, okay. He, he was like the door opened. <laughs> you know, the, the yeah. clouds the clouds went away and. So and he just turned it out like crazy, you know, just stuff that that only a guy like Pat Metheny can do. Yeah. So he welcomed the input and he just ran with it like crazy. And so that's that. So that's an example, a perfect example of what you're asking about. How do I direct them? I just I just express to them. What I'm looking for in that specific, I try to be very specific yeah. about it in that in that way. Um, usually, I just bring in guys who's playing I love, and so I think I've, I've pretty much been lucky with when they come in. I like Garcia playing on a barren ground uh, on the last range record, Night on the Town, or playing on a song called Pastures of Plenty. It's kind of our sort of our leprechaun. Six sure. eight six eight vibe, and he he just played amazingly on that. But yeah. he just played, he just did the Jerry thing over my music. I, I, again, casting it in the sense of is this a song of mine that would fit their mm. style? Yeah. And I don't yeah. like to I don't like to uh, typecast someone. I, I, I'm because I'm well aware on from the other side of the glass how that feels. For years, I played on tons of people's records. And so I would go in there, and I'm hearing this sort of very conventional pop song. So I'm going to try to spin it a little bit and make it more interesting, at least to me. Yeah. And so I'm doing this sort of more, I don't know, complex voicings and yeah. uh, uh, over this very, very triadic, maybe folky kind of thing. And maybe it didn't fit. And they would always go, well, yeah, that's that's interesting, but... Can you make it? They they gradually steer me in a very yeah. simple direction where I would I would come in after the session and go, you know, you to be honest, you could have really gotten anybody to do what you've yeah. gotten to do. I so I'm happy to have done it for you, but really that's the that's the truth of the matter. Yeah. Basically, an unspoken in that statement is, don't call me again. <laughs> yeah. Be, so there have been times where I've said like like with Pat, hey, be more be more adventurous. Take it yeah. take it more out. Don't play it straight. And he was the perfect guy to say that to. Uh, Wayne Shorter played on uh, End of the Innocence, most notably. Yeah. 
And it's just a beautiful solo. I just love it. And it's, it's again, it's fairly angular. It's a very triadic, diatonic song, End of the Innocence. But he, he uh, oh yeah, so I did have a suggestion for him in the studio when he was doing it, because he was playing something not unlike what Pat was doing, sort of a... Pentatonic in that case. Yeah. And I said to him, Wayne, that's fine, but, you know, you please go back out into the spheres a little bit and, yeah. and play. Imagine you're playing. Look, Weather Report had some very diatonic, very white note uh, moments. Obviously, Bird landed some, you know, in, in sec- sections yeah. and Teen Town, m- many things. Black Market. Uh, so whatever I said to, them, to him to that effect, it's worked because then the next thing he played was it. And it just yeah. sounded like, oh, this is Wayne Shorter. And oh my God, this is, I get chills thinking about it right now. So those moments are are just what you live for. Yeah. And actually what I love about that, that solo in particular is when you think about, even not even taking into consideration all the rest of the verses of that song, but if you just think of the idea of innocence and kids just taking chances, doing things without like, I don't, I didn't study this, but I'm just trying this thing. And sometimes it lands and some just like, oh, like that, I wouldn't have done that, but that makes so much sense. And it's so beautiful when you see kids do certain things. I think there's like an innocence and an exploration that maybe is almost in some ways subconsciously so artistic. Well, you're relating it to the lyrics and that's a very nice and and thoughtful explication. I, I like it. Uh, I'll have to tell Don Henley about what you said. And <laughs> I, I'm not sure Don was really that interested in the Wayne Shorter aspect of that record. He wasn't part of sure. it, t- too much of it, uh, but that's a different story. <laughs> so, yeah. So I did hear, I, <laughs> I had a random, speaking of you and session work and either trying to go somewhere else's thing or or doing your own thing, I was playing a festival a few years back and our ride from the airport to the festival, Don was and I landed at the same time and yeah. our our you know our ride was the same person. So Don and I were in the back seat of this SUV, just yeah. kind of hanging talking like who, I, he was familiar with my music and he was there playing with Bob Weir and we were just kind of hanging. Yes. And Wolf then, Brothers, and, yeah. Wolf yeah, Brothers. with the Wolf Brothers. And there was kind of a lull in it and he was talking about um other things that he was producing. And I just said, what is the most compelling in the moment, powerful experience of you producing? Like what, what drew out the most emotion and what was it that, how did you do it as a producer? Why did it happen? And he brought up the Bonnie Raitt session and you coming in to play piano. And he talked about the different approaches and how that was going to be. Can you explain that story from your point of view and kind of how how you approached playing that and why you did the way you did? Okay, so I was given a, uh, I was in LA. Maybe I'd come just to be on that session. I'm not sure. I played on several things for Don during that era where he was producing so many sort of legendary people from my Youth, Bob Seeger, Bob Dylan, Bonnie. Yeah. Uh, they sent me over a cassette, and I remember staying at the uh, some hotel on Beverly, big fancy place. And I went down that they had a piano in the lounge, and it was closed. And I so I had the cassette. I'm listening to this, listening to the demo of the song. 
And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, this is uh, kind of straight, but it's very, very beautiful. But let me see if I can add a little color harmonically yeah. to these chords. You know, the um, uh, I guess it's a E flat and G minor, G minor. E flat, B flat over D, G minor, C C minor. So you can take that and put and go a little Bill Evans meets the hymn book on it. Yeah. And so so that <laughs> so I said, okay, well I'm gonna remold this in my own graven image here, and and so right, we I cut the track. So I came in there, sort of armed with this conceptual idea, harmonic conception for it, my own version. So we cut the track with, I was playing, a, a and it's how the start song starts, with I'm playing some sort of electric keyboard, sort of Rhodes, this Wurlitzer feeling that you hear at this top before I come in. Yeah. And the piano comes in after that. So I played that sort of background keyboard bed with uh, Hutch Hutchinson on bass and Tony Bronigal on drums. Just the three of us, very simple record. And... Uh, and then they has so that was, I I played that a little more straight, but left myself room with open chords to be able to put the the the, the minor seconds and the, the, the yeah. clusters and and then so they said okay then we'd like you to play the piano the lead part on it so I did that thing and it was very simple it was what I'd worked up the night before and conceived of this thing and it was one take and maybe with a couple of punch in for shitty playing on my part something like that and and that was it it was an incredibly f- a quick session uh it was very natural you know she sang you know she's one of those phone book singers yeah she opens her, her mouth and sing sings you know the last name in the new york phone book archimedes zizzy and dotty and it, she can make <laughs> music out of that you know so <laughs> Three Z's on Zizzy and Dottie. Z, 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 Y, Y, Y. Obviously a made-up name so he could be the last name in the New York phone book <laughs> years ago. Uh, so so I did my Zizzy and Dottie thing on that record, and uh, <laughs> and, and that, was, that was it. But that's great to hear that Don felt that, that that's what came to his, to his mind all these years later. But I, I get it. it. It was a special moment. I don't know if we realized at the time that it was going to become this iconic yeah. piece for the world uh, that just happens. But it happened for good reason. It's a great song. Mike Reed and Mr. Shamblin, I forget Mr. Shamblin's first name, they wrote the song. Mike Reed's a former Cincinnati Bengals football player. Really? Yes. And he wrote, I Can't Make You Love Me. So wow, quite a, quite a writer, yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear the next hits that Randy Moss makes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, Rob Gronkowski. Let's hear. Yeah, what, he'll he'll write the what, next. See what Gronk's coming out with next. Yeah, <laughs> Gronk plays the hits of Ornette Coleman. That would be beautiful. <laughs> well, Lonely, maybe he'll hit you up to to do that collab. <laughs> Lonely Woman by Rob Gronkowski. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Well, one other question that I have, you brought up a lot of these musicians that come to you to work on something. And I imagine that there are many more. I mean, you've got a whole thing with Ricky Skaggs. You've got your trio with McBride and Dijonette. You've got these records that you did with Justin Vernon. You've got all these, all these different projects that you've done. When do you decide 
what projects and collaborations you want to do and what is it about some of them that you're excited about and others where you're just like, ah, I'd rather just not do it? Well, I do less and less as I get older. I, and sure. The page is kind of filled in. I've worked with so many people who I've admired for years. And so if, if you're into having a checklist and checking the boxes, there are a lot of checks on that. Uh, but it's usually a pretty instant yes or no for me. It's, uh, mm. uh, but again, mostly I say no. It just takes a little bit more to get me out of the house now. Yeah, and uh, uh, so that so right. That's that's kind of it. I, I there's certainly some people that I would work with like crazy. My my next record, for, I got another record coming out next year, but it's very nice. different. It's very different. It's with the Chamber Group, uh, the New York Chamber Ensemble Y Music that plays on okay. my records now. Yeah, and it, we've done a whole record, and it's quite special. I'm so so happy about it and looking forward to it. it's. Uh, Entering the world next year at some point, uh, mm. so so that that was just something that came about. I, I met the, the, this is how how it so often works. I played. I was asked to play Justin's festival. He just did it for a few years. It, I don't think it happens now, but in in 2016, it's the Eau Claire. It was the Eau Claire Music and Arts Festival. What yeah. a festival, man! They had the modern classical stage. I mean, who does that? Playing Frederick Rzeszewski yeah. music, you know, and Olivier Messiaen, musique d'oiseau, and I'm just going, man, this is, this, this is my place here. This is, yeah, I found my home here. Anyway, yeah. we we played, my band played before Bon Iver on the Saturday night, and but playing before before our band was uh, uh, the uh, the Staves, uh, this beautiful female British folk trio that also sang on the Absolute Zero record. The Staves and Y Music, they had done a collaboration. I think it came out on Nonesuch. And uh, and so I just, I went to here. Let me check out the opening band. And I was just floored. Wow, listen to this group playing and the beautiful singing. And so I met them and I was doing a little festival of my own at the time, Funhouse Festival here in Williamsburg. And so I got in touch with them and they came and played that. And then it just grew, it just grew and evolved from there. I had them play on songs for that the upcoming record, which was Absolute Zero, and and it's just never stopped. And so, so we did a five concert tour, uh, BH and Y Music, uh, uh, right before the shutdown, uh, end mm-hmm. of February, early March, 2020, five concerts in the Northeast, ending in Bethesda, Maryland, and Rob Moose, the the I guess he's the the leader, de facto leader of the band, and, and he's. Uh, works with me a lot without uh, without Y Music. He called me up in December and said, hey, uh, we had an idea. Would you, would you, don't you think it'd be fun if we wrote our own song? You and you and, and us. Yeah. Wrote, wrote a song and we'd perform it as our encore every night. Said, sure, I'm open to that. So so send me, so they, they put together this track, sent it to me. And I wrote this song uh, uh, called Deep Sea Vents. And uh, that's the title. That'll probably be the title of this record coming out next year. And we played it every night to great acclaim and, and huzzas from the audience. And we thought, wow, we should just keep going with this. So we didn't take it up again until the next Christmas or so when I called Rob and said, hey, how about that idea? Or maybe he called me. And we've continued, and now we have 10 songs. And uh, 
So that's how this collaborative thing can work so often. Uh, Ezra Koenig, Vampire Weekend, who sings on the first song that I was singing a little while ago, Sidelines. Yeah. He got in touch with me out of the blue a couple of years ago. He has this great podcast called Time Crisis, and he asked me to be his guest on Time Crisis. So we, I did that because I was a fan of what he was doing anyway with his band. And, uh, and we just connected and have continued to, to continued our relationship. And then he sang on this. So great. You never know, you never know where it's coming from, but it's, uh, so I'm open to inquiries, but less open than I used to be. (laughs) Okay. I was, I was a cheap date back in the day because I would never, (laughs) I would never charge anybody when I'd play on a session, you know, Bonnie Ray and I came, I, I didn't charge for that, because it's not how I was making my living. It was sort of a sure. busman's holiday for me, and I just uh, would do that. So that's probably why I got so many calls, because people realized I was cheap. I worked, <laughs> worked cheap. I would, I would say it probably has more to do with your artistry and creativity, but... Uh, yeah, 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 but, 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 the, <laughs> but the, the, keeping the bottom line uh, at bay is... Uh, it, I guess, yeah, the it, labels... It can't, it can't yeah. be a negative anyway. Yeah, it's, it can't sure. be a negative. Well, hopefully someday you'll say yes to me when I email you to uh, to play piano on something of mine. How about that? <laughs> well, you know, you guys see, you guys are at a different level on an on a ability of on a level. You play these crazy tempos and <laughs> and so I, if if I said no to you, Corey, it would probably be for a lack of confidence in my abilities to hang. It reminds me of playing with Ricky Skaggs' band. Okay, so that's to Kentucky Thunder. Yeah. And in bluegrass, you know the tempos are fast and faster. Yeah, exactly. Up there. <laughs> Every time I would get ready to go out and play a tour with, with the Skaggs group, I would get my metronome out and put it at 168, 176. Yeah, just a bang, 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 bang. And to just get acclimated to it, because it was, yeah. I was a total dilettante. I was just... I couldn't. These guys have been playing since they're babies, just like the old song Nashville Cat sure. says. <laughs> you know, this is what they do. This is out of my wheelhouse. I'm not trying to be that guy. I'm just trying to be creative on a compositional level for the most part in this yeah. era of my life. I'm still a shedder, but it's more about learning modern classical music, Elliot Carter and Messiaen and uh, Schoenberg, Webern. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, lig- yeah. Ligety, the etudes, you know, that's a whole different conversation there. Sure. Not much about guitars. Maybe we should get back into the guitar world here. But hey, if a guitar player wants to really push himself, try to play the right hand of some of those Ligety etudes. They're just yeah. something else. Really a- a- another world opening up to whoever decides to to delve into it. Yeah. Well, I have one last question as somebody who gets asked this all the time. People ask me this all the time, and I, it's seeming, seemingly every other day, I feel like I have something to say or I know nothing, which yeah, is- Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I'm the same <laughs> way, yeah. Yeah, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. yeah, but for somebody who's been in all these different genres, who's been an icon in the industry for so long now, <laughs> I don't know about There's, that, but okay, whatever. Well, yeah. You, you, yeah. enough people have told you that you are. You, I know you got oh, I don't. Just, I don't know yet. But I have been doing it a long time. It's 36 years now since my first record. And so I, I, they still let me do it. So, I, okay, I, I'll accept that. They're very nice. <laughs> to young artists that are just getting going now, 
for people that are trying to find their voice, trying to find their thing, express who they are, find something unique about themselves, what is some piece of advice that you have for them? Well, you just said it, and, and you said what's, uh, what's required or what's necessary to break through the mass of pretty good music that's out there is, is finding your own voice and finding mm. something that's yeah. unique to you that moves people. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a simple idea. If you want to get some record company to be interested in, in you, you just have to make something that, that they can't stop listening to. Yeah. That, that moves them so much. Mm. It's a simple statement, but it's really hard to do. Yeah. And it, it wasn't till I turned my, decided, as I told you about Mike McDonald, seven, December 78, and then I got signed in, in 85, spring. Mm-hmm. All the, 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 that entire time, when I, and I said that was, that was right, that's the way it should, should have happened, I was trying to find my own voice find myself. Uh, and uh, my, I, my way of doing it was, again, to, to listen to something. When something gave me chills, I wanted to investigate why and mm. what, about, what about that, whether it was those lush Bill Evans chords or, or church music or shape notes singing or just shaker hymns, whatever it could be, or the nastiest old Sonny Boy Williamson thing record, yeah. uh, Muddy Waters. All of that, whatever, and so I would try to be influenced by that, and but put it in this soup and make it your own. And so that's that's one way to do it. I think it's a great way to do it. I started a program at University of Miami called the Creative American Music Program. I'm not sure it's still they're still. I'm not sure they followed my guideline for this, but I I, I created a, a a 15 CD collection of the great sort of the old, the weird old America, the old gut mm. bucket hymns and and uh, nasty old Doc Boggs and Roscoe Holcomb, uh, banjo, uh, clawhammer banjo stuff, you know. Time in Rocky Mountains, I walk around tomorrow. That fucking, that stuff kills me. I just, it hits me where I live. Mm. And so, okay, I was reading a Bob Dylan a book of interviews and people kept asking him similar question. How do you learn to be a, a songwriter of some depth, some gravitas? And he always said, go back to the traditions, go back to the origins of American music, the deep, deep uh, tradition of the black church. And I think a lot of that's being lost. I know I sound like an old fart talking about this old stuff, but there's, again, such a, such a gravitas to that music. It's so moving. Reverend Gary Davis... Now, I don't think really the UM crowd has really taken me uh, literally here. I mm. wanted kids to come in. I wanted the little the little folk, uh, female folk singer-songwriter who, was, who loved uh, Joni Mitchell and uh, Ricky Lee Jones or whoever, Sean Colvin, uh, to come in and try to learn what I just sang or yeah. Muddy Waters. I thought, what could be better than someone who— comes from this folk thing, but then has this nasty old-time blues feeling, there's, a, there's a, a place to go, for instance, that we don't know. We haven't heard that sound yet. Yeah. You know, and so that's a—I'm just coming up with this off the top of my head. Yeah. That's one way to do it. But so amass just, just 
uh, engorge yourself on the mass amount of music. I'm influenced by everybody from Muddy Waters to Elliot Carter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> that's the broadest, you know, that's really wide, but it's all in there. And so I think that has helped me find my voice originally and then continue to move that and evolve that mm. through the years. Uh, and so I'm not sure, I'm, maybe I'm a little tangentially answering your question, but I think no, it's, that's, that's I think great. in there, because you kind of said it, most people who come to me who have uh, uh, who have something they want me to hear, oh, there's someone in my church who's just the greatest, just a great singer, and she just uh, just moves everybody. She's so great, and they send me the tape, and I so and I say, you're right, she's fantastic. Or even if I hadn't heard a tape, I will say, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure if I came to your church and heard this young woman sing. I would be deeply moved by it. I'm sure I would love it. But in the big picture, there's got to be more than that because, frankly, you can go to most any church in uh, straight down the, the peninsula from where I live, Hampton, Newport News, Portsmouth, Norfolk, you know, and hear one or two or more great singers in every church. It's not special. It's special on a, on a sort of a chills, moving someone level, but there's just so many out there. So you have to find a way to set yourself apart and create mm-hmm. your own thing that that moves you into your own area that, that is not like everybody else. So uh, so you you kind of said it. You, that's what you have. That's that's the real goal. Yeah. But it's really fun to try it because yeah. hopefully if, if you're intellectually curious about about a hundred styles and and just try to grok it all, then you you have a chance at somehow finding the best of it to you and mm. and make, creating your own stew, your own mix, mishmash of all this that ends up sounding completely unique. And that's my story. <laughs> I love it. Bruce, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This really means a lot. It's great to... Great to have you on the podcast. Uh, so, such a pleasure. It's so nice to talk to someone who really knows the territory, and you clearly do. If anybody goes to your gigs, they'll go, this cat is no freaking joke. And uh, so way to go. Way to, way to oh, create your, you. your, your great career. And uh, thanks for having me. It was real fun. Of course. Thank you. Hopefully okay. see you sometime soon. Okay, Corey. Thank you. There you have it. Bruce Hornsby. You know what? He makes a little more sense to me now. His music and his artistry makes a little more sense to me now. Because you know what? Sometimes you listen to somebody's music enough, you kind of get a sense of maybe what their personality is like, and then you meet them in person, or you you hang out and you talk to them, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yes, now I understand this, now I understand this, now I understand this. And it maybe fills in the blanks a little bit, or maybe if you meet a person and you really know them well, and then you hear their music or you you absorb their art in some way, it actually explains a little bit more about who they are as a person. It happens both ways. And I feel like I got that after hanging with Hornsby. So I really enjoyed that, and I hope you did as well. Thanks for being with us here today. Smash that subscribe, follow, whatever. I don't know. I don't know where you're listening to this podcast. Podcasts are all over the place now. So whatever the thing is that's going to ding you when I put out a new episode, or not ding you, the the thing that's going to just let you know when I have a new episode out, 
hit that thing. It helps us out. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really excited to have you here listening. It's not lost on me. Okay. There's a lot of podcasts out there. I appreciate you listening to mine. Guess what? I got some dope episodes coming up. Little secret. Can you say Derek Trucks? <laughs> ah! oh, oh, oh. Yeah, you heard it. Derek Trucks is coming. Derek Trucks is coming. I don't know if I was supposed to announce it or not. I don't care. I'm stoked about it. We'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.